Building up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united. We must stand. Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And welcome to Creatures of the Industry. We're now in Series 5. Didn't think we'd get this far so quickly, but anyway, we are, and uh, Creatures of the Industry is available on 3CR on a Friday morning, so you can get it, of course, online through 3CR's uh, podcast portfolio, or you can go to Apple Podcasts, you can even get it on Spotify. Oh dear, all those people potentially listening to this, get a Nick Moore our creature of the industry today. Good day, Ralph. How are you, mate? I am very good, Nick. And uh, you didn't think you were going to be uh, spread on the international uh, internet to the extent that you are. Well, Anyone listening anywhere in the world <laughs> can now listen. Well, life is full of surprises even in the mid-80s. Yes, indeed. And uh, just a cheerio to one of our uh, regular listeners, Les Richardson, a uh, old stalwart of the TWU, sent us a very nice letter and uh, complimented the show and uh, some good memories. Thanks very much, Les. It's appreciated. And anyone else who would like to communicate to the podcast, you can send us an email. Creatures of the industry, one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Now let's have a little talk about Nick Moore and how you came to join the uh, building and construction industry. Well, it's, uh, I started out, I wasn't interested in anything, perhaps trying to land a girl. Uh, we were drinking a lot of beer and Guinness at the time. Uh, life yeah. was about other things. But as you get older and your responsibility lands, well, you have to uh, take things more seriously. I was working as a shop fitter originally and then chasing a bit more money. I got into the concrete uh, on sites. Uh, so now That was in Australia? That was here in Melbourne, yeah. And, and things changed a bit then. Uh, there was a lot more to deal with for a start. Uh, you had to watch your step in case you actually finished at the end of the day because safety wasn't uh, much good in those days. But anyway... I was on the job up at Monash University and uh, 
the steward there, he used to sit in the lunch with the, uh, with the site manager, but he was leaving. And I said to the boys in the shed, now, who's going to take on the job when this fellow goes? No one wanted a job. Neither did I, to be truthful. They said, why don't you take it on? Well, I said, I'd prefer if one of you boys took it on, but if no one does and you want to support me, I'll take it on. I took it on. They, put, they elected me as steward. I went over to the site project manager and he said, I'm very glad to hear, Nick, that you've got the job. And I said, well, if you still feel that way in four weeks' time, I'm resigning. <laughs> so I said, no, I might as well put you on notice now. You're very wise if you listen to me and do exactly as I tell you and you won't have my trouble. We'll start with safety on this. I'm always keen for people to work safely. Why risk your life for a miserable whatever it was then, you know? So that's where it started. I was out at Monash. And what building were you working on at that stage? It's a Menzies building or...? Oh, no, hang on, mate, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Menzies? No, uh, it was the mathematics building. Oh, all right, yeah. And, and Salzer was the builder, and Salzer wasn't the worst in the world. When I asked him whether his dog had a nice kennel, better than our amenities, he acknowledged that the dog did and immediately set about fixing the amenities, you know? But that was the sort of thing that you had to keep raising these issues about what was decent and what was fair for human beings. Yeah. So Not, at what age were you when you became a delegate for the first time? Oh, I was, I was, it was 1972, I think. Uh, I'd be late 20s. So when did you actually come into the industry with your apprenticeship as a shop fitter and so on? Well, I... I uh, left school at 14 and I, I, could, I had to wait until I was 15 to start an apprenticeship. I always had an idea of doing carpentry and woodwork and mm. stuff. Uh, so I had to wait five months after I'd left school until I reached the age of 15. And so I started in July, my apprenticeship, at Swinburne Tech. The, the bloke was uh, Atkins, was a... Uh, he was a nice, decent enough blog, but he was a pommy blog. You know, they're a bit funny, the palms. And he said to me, well, I'm not worrying about you. You won't pass. And I said, well, I'll show you, mate. So I passed all right. And we, I stayed in the shop fitting until I was uh, able to start an apprenticeship. Five years shop fitting with Brooks Robinson's over the river down in South Melbourne. And when it, the day I reached the end of my apprenticeship, I re- resigned and headed to the Snowy. With Tommy? With my brother, Thomas, said, come up here and uh, we'll make a lot of money. Well, off I went. We didn't make much money, though. <laughs> we, we spent most of it in the bar. <laughs> well, given that Tommy was running the bar... <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Two o'clock in the morning we'd be still in there. In fact, I left the Snowy because had I stayed much longer, I'd have become an alcoholic. That's the truth. Uh, so I came back to town to shop fitting again and then I, uh, this young Tasmanian girl caught my eye and uh, that was when things started to get serious. Right? And now I'm on building sites. Yeah. So we're talking late 60s were on building sites? No. Uh, or early 70s? Uh, no, 60... Uh, when was it? 62 or 3. Right. So you've done your apprenticeship? Yeah. Been to the Snowy, 
You've come back to Melbourne, done a bit more shop fitting, and when do you reckon in the 60s did you get on your first building site as such? Uh, let me think now for a minute. Uh, I worked down on the Commonwealth Bank on Elizabeth and Flinders. Uh, no, I'll tell you where it was. It was the hotel in, in Spring Street, just next to the sh- what was the Shell building. Andy Lawson was the builder. We had a song. We used to sing, we worked for Andy Lawson at the Sheraton Hotel. That's what it was, right? And then I went from there, I went uh, overseas. I went off to London for six months and two years later I came back. So it was later I met Jerry. And in England, no. of course, the union, there was no, there was no union that still isn't. Shocking. Yeah. So you worked in, on building sites in London? Uh, look, I worked on the country shows. There was big money in there, and you had to be in the union before you got through the door. Right. Uh, and so what sort of work did you do on the country shows? Well, they had a, a portable Barclays bank. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. This is before the days of ATMs. Oh, yeah, well before that. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it, was, it was packed up in a... a Railway carriage thing. Yep. And they'd deliver that to the showgrounds and we'd get to the showgrounds on... We had three days to build it and one day to pull it down. So we'd get down there, we had it up before the end of the day and then we'd return to London on the train and get back on the Friday when the show finished and it'd be back in the container by midnight and we were back in London with it and... We were getting three times the rate there, and we were in the union, yep. but it was all about backload, big money, you know, they didn't care. And I saw a lot of South England on all these shows. Fascinating. I know Midsummer Murders backwards. <laughs> I, you know, I there anyway, that was... Uh, I worked at the Albert Hall on, on the... Uh, as a maintenance carpenter, yep. I took on any job. That I ended up working in the bar at the King's Head Hotel, which was the Australian hotel in London, for the simple reason that they served cold beer. <laughs> that was it. And uh, they, they served the cold beer, and I worked there for a year, asking about London, Eventually, it was time to move on. And South Africa, I thought, I'll go to South Africa. And then I had an interview, you know, and then I thought, well, why would I go to South Africa? Australia is calling a much better country. So I thought, well, it's time to go home. And at that time, South Africa was in the midst of apartheid and all that. And I thought, no, I don't really want to go there. So back home to Melbourne... And uh, I, I couldn't get a job at the start, uh, so I did build villas out in Doncaster. Let me get it right now. The, the years have slipped by. So I worked in the housing industry, and from there I came in, in a big way into full-time, into concrete. Formwork. Formwork. Hmm. Various jobs. And that's where I took an interest in... Uh, not only in health and safety on building sites, but I did a course at Swinburne Tech because uh, I wanted to improve my knowledge of the technical side of building. 
I did a course in scaffolding, and oh, it was very oh handy. Dear, oh dear! Very scaffold handy. inspection. I hope rather than scaffold. Uh, oh yeah, confidence. yeah, scaffold, scaffolding inspection, but it came in very handy. No, when I became an organiser, if ever I wanted an item about scaffolding, there was only one place I went, and that was to the block building it. And then you knew you, you knew you were right. We're just, I'm just reflecting on uh, one of the age-old problems of tradesmen doing labourers' work. Oh, I remember. So it. scaffold inspection's fine. Scaffold erection and de- demolition oh. is another matter. <laughs> I, I never did it, Ralph, honestly, but I remember well when ca- every second carpenter had a scaffold key in their pocket and uh, then when scaffolds started falling down and people started getting killed... I remember very well Norm Wallace put his foot down and said, well, there's no more, you know, amateurs building scaffolds. You get a ticket and you're a BL and that's all the end of it. Yeah, I mean, it made sense too. So we're just jumping around a little bit, but um, we're probably in a situation where we go back now to Monash. It's your first job as a delegate. Yeah. You've got a heap of experience in all different aspects of your trade as a carpenter and shop fitter. So how did you put that into practice, both as a person working on the job but also then also representing people on the job for the BWIU, as it then was? Yeah. Well, I was a bit unorthodox. I I got away with a lot in terms of... uh, doing it my way, right? If I looked at something and it wasn't right, I didn't muck about. I didn't need anyone to tell me whether it was right or not. I said, we're not working there until you fix it, that sort of thing. And uh, Bob Salter was the builder, and I said to Bob, now, if you want to get on with me, Bob, you tell your management, keep out of my way, right, and they'll be okay. But I don't want any arguments because I know how to fix them. So... That was, I took a very aggressive approach because I found if you if there was any thought in the builder's mind that you were a softy, it's going to cause you a lot of trouble down the line. You had to be in charge. So that, no, I didn't have any problems there. Um, it, the jobs went fairly well. He was a good builder. The blocks were staunch. That was the other side of it. The blokes on the job were, were union men. They, they believed in the union. And uh, that's a big plus. Where you get jobs where you've got, uh, you know, people who are anti-union, it's, it makes it very hard. So <clears throat> on that job, you, you're working with builders' labourers. I take it there was probably also uh, some carpenters there from uh, the opposition... Well, the opposition, the, the, the lad that was the um, steward for the opposition, he said to me, well, we'll, you have this man coming on the job that's not in the union and I'll have the next one. And I used a good old Australian phrase. I said, pig's ass, you will. I'm having the lot. Right? And you want to know why? Because I said, I'll look after him, right? But you and you and my want. They're all going to come on the job. Talk to the people in the shed and leave. Right? Every other organiser came on the job. They went and spoke to the blokes whom they represented. So I, 
I didn't stand for any of that one and one. They were all my blocks in the end. And they backed me. Now, what other unions were on the job that you worked with as fellow delegates and with organisers and so on? There would have been a fair few in those days. Oh, look, on the job, uh, most times the, the union delegates worked together, obviously, to, to strength in numbers. Uh, there was the plasters. The brickies were a bit odd. They didn't like to be WIU. So, but the steward was, uh, you know, just a bloke working on a job. Uh, plasters, brickies. Plumbers. Plumbers. Sparkies. 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 Sparkies didn't get involved as much. Mm-hmm. In fact, I used to think that at times the Sparkies... When the crunch was on, they sat on the fence a bit. But they were, in, in a, they had a one-off. Yeah, it was different to today, in every sense. Uh, they had a, just electrical, though. There was no other crisscross of activity, if you know what I mean. And that's a licensed trade. Yeah. I can sort of remember a, uh, a dispute back in the 70s when we were all locked out for weeks and weeks and weeks and... Uh, Anyway, uh, when we can finally, I say- finally got back to work, and the Sparkies went on strike for twenty four hours to get what we'd just got. Anyway, yeah. no, I wanted to say something along. about that. That that was in nineteen seventy five, yes, and that was the very day that I started as an organizer, and I got I got into a punch up, <laughs> and I'm not a violent person. Couldn't fight my way out of a paper bag. This bloke had, had a guard me down to the RMIT. Oh, I thought, well, he insulted my dignity and I thought I should defend it, so... <laughs> yeah, 75. Big year, 75. But <laughs> let's just get back to Monash. You finished the job, the mathematics building at, at Monash. About when? Oh, look, uh, oh, let me see. 74. Yep. And before I'd left Monash... The union had approached me to take on a, an organiser's job. Who in particular put it on you? Des uh, Kelly. The one and only. Des had convinced them in the... Swan, uh, well, they were in the trades hall then. Yep. He said, this bloke is OK. So, but the, the position wasn't available for six months. So I moved from Monash out to Maroondah Hospital and... I had an aversion with asbestos. Don't bring asbestos near me. I don't know why, but this was, I took this up. We had to walk up a ladder in those days to get on the deck, and there was a steel beam. They had a ladder leaning against a steel beam covered in asbestos, limpet fibre. And I got to that ladder and I said, I'm not walking up the ladder. Oh, I didn't know what to do. So well, I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to down to the office and I'm going to call the union. So I went down there and the foreman, it was supposed to be a real bastard, but he wasn't actually. He was a pretty decent bloke. I said, can I use the phone? I'm moving in the union. Now, normally they'd say, no, you can't. Use. He said, what, what's the problem? Well, I said, you've got bloody asbestos being kicked down into people's faces. It's usually more than one on a ladder which is, of course, not, a, not allowed, but I said, I'm getting someone out here who's getting rid of that asbestos. 
he said, well, I, I fully support you. So Kelly came out, sorted it out, fixed it up, and that started me on a, a campaign which a lot of people don't even know about it, but I was very successful in playing my part in getting rid of asbestos out of the industry, along with Bill Davis, Ray Winstanley. Now, you've finally become an organiser. Yeah. Was that ever your intention, or was it just something that happened? Every job I had in my lifetime, it happened. I never actually said I'm going to become the Prime Minister or anything like that. No ambition. I mean, I was quite a to work. But usually it was someone said to me, you should do this. And, of course, I, once I did it, I became really keen because one thing in my lifetime that I have abhorred was injustice. Mm. People who can't defend themselves haven't got what it takes, been stood over and, and, you know, treated badly, and now I'm in a position where I can actually step in mm. and I can put that other person in their place. That gave me great pleasure, I've got to tell you. So you've become an organiser for the BWIU. Yep. And I take it Al Zuno was the secretary at the time? Yep. And the assistant secretary would have been Ray Collins? Yep. And you had Doug Black, Des Kelly, uh, yep. Frank Gasparini. You would have had uh, a lot of old names from the uh, yeah, yeah. 60s and 70s. Yes, they were all, a lot of them were uh, returned men. Yeah. Zeno was in the boiler of the ship. Now, you've, you don't have much chance if you're in a warship stoking the Boiler, and you get hit, that's you gone. I mean, yeah. I think that would be the worst place. Uh, Des Kelly was a prisoner of the Japanese. Hated Japanese. God, uh, Norm Wallace, of course, was heroic in, in the stuff that he did, where they put him. Yes. Uh, so there were a lot of great men, in my opinion. Yeah. Ray and, Collins. And they all had a good working relationship with each other. Oh, they did. Despite uh, a dislike for the perhaps the New South Wales branch of the BWIU, I think, yes, there was a, a clear understanding. And at that time, there would have been probably a breakdown in the uh, Victorian Building Industry Agreement, which had been in place since 1956, and all those blokes would have been involved in developing that agreement. Um, but, of course, there was a lot of politics and a lot of disputation. And, of course, uh, the Prime Minister of the country was sacked in 1975, but there was also that lockout where you walked in yeah. the door and basically... Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> We're all going home. And it was, uh, it was a very difficult time for everybody. Yes, it was, but despite... See, it was a big shock that you come off the job where all the delegates are mates and and then you go to the trades hall and the first I got attacked, the very first time I stepped through the door by George Jackson, of all people. Now, right? George Jackson, just for those people that don't know, was the uh, secretary of the uh, painters... Uh, sorry, the... Uh, Roof Slaters and Tilers. Roof Slaters and Tilers. Yes, I stand correction there. And he was the father of Mark Jackson. Yes. So you got a bit of an idea now. 
as to what he was like. I and, got attacked. Uh, oh, I yeah. would have said there were two peas in a pod myself. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. so much alike. So anyway, he attacked me. I was plotting against him and I said, what? And this was while I was trying to enjoy a pot over at the John Curtin. But so this was the difference, I think. Yeah. That you, my aim in life was to represent the men and do the very best I could. But suddenly now I'm involved in the political side of the trade union movement, and it happens in every organisation. I'm sure the politics come up, right? But my I'd prefer to concentrate on saying, well, look, I'm out there on the job doing the job for the members. Now, before we get on to politics and all the stuff that followed through the 70s into the 80s, do you reckon you could give us a basically a picture of how the industry was actually working at that time? What was the dynamics of the industry? What sort of jobs were getting done? How was the work getting done? What sort of changes were taking place in that period but when you came on to building sites and when you became an organiser? Well, it was... Uh, it, the biggest changes were in the technological age, with, in brackets. Uh, you had uh, precast coming in. Uh, there was a huge amount of, of precast used in the housing commission flats and... Uh, you had uh, electrical tools now were improving. Nothing like what they are now, but, but there was a whole difference. And it, that caused some problems because before all these tools, which made life easier for everybody, uh, came into vogue, there were other trades would do work that could be classified and, and it was eventually as builders' labourers' work or metal trades work. But now you've got, uh, and a desire, I would think, on the part of the BLs to increase their membership. I wouldn't put that too completely out of the question. But this was a big difference. You've got what was a fairly difficult job with the tools available, hand tools, now were quite easy with electrical tools and, and the different applications. So that became... Uh, an issue, who and, was going to do the work. And there was also concrete pumps coming in. The, yeah. The quality of the uh, cranage was in, was miraculously changing. Well, the capacity the, and the ease of operation, all those things. Uh, and f- for good reason that now we've got buildings that are going up a lot higher than they were prior. Mm. Right? There was um, rivalries, political and otherwise, but you'll get those in any walk of life, I think. Now, I, the way I looked at it was, oh, and the other major one, Ralph, was subcontracting, right? You didn't work for the builder there. You worked for some crowd that uh, were in it purely, right? For the, <laughs> There were some sharpies in that subcontracting area, I can tell you. I remember... And I won't mention names because it might be a bit difficult, but there were one or two that I uh, took an instant dislike to because they really didn't treat the blokes with any respect. Right? The only thing missing was a horsewhip. And so you had to put a stop to that. And that, therefore, as indeed most unions did, improve uh, the 
education of job stewards. Because the minute you left the job, it all went back to where it was the day before. So job stewards were hugely important in those days to make sure that uh, all the things that we said were going to happen, happened. So I think that was the biggest one, subcontracting. And in terms of form work, uh, pre-stressing, post-stressing, post-tensioning, all those sort of changes had been slowly coming in, but that was affecting the uh, formwork area in particular. Oh, look, Nauru House was built with panels made from made in South Australia. Mm. All, all our boys did was the slab, the mm. columns, and the rest of it, was, all the facade was all precast panels. Not a huge number of carpenters that were, uh, lost their jobs and labourers. So, yeah, you had and to... And a whole lot of them had to be brought back later and fix it up when the uh, concrete cancer got going. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can remember, if you don't mind me digressing, the State Bank, right, Costain, they, there was a concrete strike. Uh, the the, the um, concrete companies, the labourers put a ban on it for whatever... Oh, let me think. But anyway, Costains at the bank said, we'll get concrete elsewhere. And they did. Two floors they put in this concrete. But it didn't pass the slump test. <laughs> it didn't pass anything. And they had to jackhammer it back out. Well, actually, you could almost put, take it out with your hands. And the boys had to work night shift so that they wouldn't disturb everybody you know, in the daytime, if you lived in the city, it might be disturbing, but they they had to provide blocks with soup and toasted sandwiches. <laughs> so that was another thing. Concrete technology was really a, a big issue. You know, it really improved the strength and that of uh, the buildings. Yeah. Bill Fagney. Well... There was, to my memory, I'm not saying my memory's perfect, but the amount of change that took place by comparing the 60s to the 70s was very dramatic. Oh, yeah. And I would have thought, and interested in your opinion, to do a 20-storey building in the 1960s and to do it at the end of the 1970s Probably half the workforce? I would say you're pretty close, one way sorry, or the other, yeah. And the workforce that was there was almost totally uh, subcontract by that stage, or am I a little bit early? Now, I remember visiting a job in Queen Street where some bright builder now has got to use the housing methodology. Hmm. Everyone's a subcontract. I was called onto the site because a bloke had brought on a small scaffold and someone else had just grabbed it. And I said, why did you bring the scaffold onto the site? To do my work, he said. No, I said, well, who do you work for? <laughs> so I found out they're all subbies. Well, I said, you want me you can take your ladder back home because that's not going to get in you. Yeah, that was... And, of course, if they'd got away with that sort of thing, that's the way it would be now. You'd be working as a subcontractor like the Gig Society of Community. Oh, dear. 
Bear me. Now, we're, in, we're getting to the later 70s. We're back from the lockout. We are probably ticking over in terms of work, and then we hit the wall in the early 80s. And economically, there yep. was a, a, a downturn and it really affected the industry. Yes. Now, as an organiser with the BWIU, uh, things started to get pretty difficult. There was only one big job going at the time and that was Norialto. That was a job that uh, stands in the memory of everybody as... John Kane said in 1982 there was only one tower crane on the skyline of Melbourne and that was the Rialto. How do, you, how do you recall that period? Because it was a pretty crucial period in the history of the industry. Well, I was more than happy in my job. Hmm. And if it wasn't for having a beer with Jack Ellis in the John Curtin, I probably would have gone right through without moving anywhere. But as it happened, I was having a beer with Jack from the Painters' Union and he said to me that the the elections were coming up at the Trades Hall and we were discussing the elections. And I said to him, Jack, if you want to have any success at the Trades Hall elections, you've got to start softly, gently. Someone who's identified but it's not the top rung of the ladder. So, and, and I, just as an aside, I said to him, someone like myself, that was all. And because I, I, was a, I, I never considered myself a heavyweight, I was always a bit of a lightweight. Anyway, the following week I met him and I, he said, oh, I fixed all that up, Nick. I said, what did you fix up, Jack? He said, I've got approvals from the left. You'll be a candidate for the industrial officer at the Trades Hall. No, I said, I didn't mean that, Jack. I didn't. I wasn't canvassing for the job. I said, I've got a job, right? Oh, he said, well, uh, and he said, why don't you ever talk to Alf Zeno about it? So I said to Alf, Jack's organising all this, not me. He said, do you think you can beat the candidate they've put up? And you know who he was? He was the assistant secretary of the other union. ASC and Jake. And Zeno said to me, do you think you could win that? I said, well, I do, yeah. yeah." But I said, I didn't really want to move anywhere. Next thing I know, I'm being nominated. It came to the election night, and it was a bit of a bounty that night too. I was, I was threatened by someone, and I said to him, he'd better get an orange box to stand on before he's ever got me. But this is all... Anyway, what happened was... I went into work the next morning and I was listening to the radio. It said Ray Collins had been elected the president. And there was no better man, let me say, than Ray. He was a good man. And when I got in, I said, good on you, Ray. I said, that's fantastic. He said, well, you won too. Well, they didn't mention that. But what had happened, there was two votes. And they weren't marked one and two. They were just marked one against my name, the one. And I said, well, they're still my votes. Well, he said, the opposition have, have challenged it because you must have a majority of the delegates in the, ho- in the chamber, right? Well, with two out, 
it's not the majority. And, oh, there was legal people came in and all that, but I knew from uh, scrutineering that all you had to do was make your intention clear, you know. Anyway, I end up, I end up as industrial officer at the trades hall and I missed all that part of the 80s except people had come to me and say, can you fix this? <laughs> and there was, of course, the uh, disputes procedure and the disputes committee and all the rest of it at Trades Hall because there was a fair bit of formalisation of uh, industrial disputes well, without necessarily getting caught up in the uh, Arbitration and Conciliation Commission. Well, you had the uh, building industry agreement back, right, that had dropped out with the national award thing back then. And you had the BIG, the building industry group. Yeah, and it was very interesting because we also were fortunate enough to have a bloke called Vosti, the ex-commissioner, who was, in my opinion, one a great man, right, and he was a sensible man and he didn't take lightly to... Uh, people who fancied themselves politicians or whoever. He was very critical of people who were up themselves. And he knew how to settle things, right? The, em- the employer's representative used to say, well, they don't deserve any lost time. And Vosti would say, well, well, if you take the dispute, was it totally the, the cause by the workers or did you play some part in it? Well, she played some part and you could have stopped it. And he'd always lean a little bit towards the workers, in my opinion. He never admitted that. But so that was every week we had the hearings. And uh, of course, then he was, uh, he, uh, Vossi was replaced by Paddy Donnelly. So that was busy times for me. And I had builders on the phone saying, uh, can you call a meeting with this lot and that lot and the other lot? And one, one morning I had six meetings going and I had to appoint a chairman of each meeting and for them asking them to report back to me if they made any progress. So that was, it was a good thing. It wasn't, didn't always work to, to the way everybody wanted it, but I reckon that dispute board saved the industry millions. Right, The dispute was over and there were lots of disputes. And how many do you reckon ended up in the commission, by comparison to the disputes procedure in the industry? Uh, no, I would say the very few, and they would relate mainly to uh, awards, changing awards and, or anything that would threaten, but the domestic disputes all went to the board. So domestic, occupational health and safety, failure to pay, those sort of things were dealt with in the Victorian industry's own disputes procedure. Yeah. Look, before 85, Ralph, uh, the Ock Health and Safety Act was the greatest thing that ever happened, not just to the building industry but to the industry in general. I mean, you had the labour industry regulations, but they didn't, they didn't pull any punch. They, you know, there was no grunt the builders just shrugged it off. What they didn't couldn't get fined. They weren't threatened with prosecution personally. 
for negligence. But so we had, I remember once at the Trades Hall, I rang the Minister for Labor and Industry and said, there's a blue one out, at, out in the north somewhere. I said, oh, the scaffolding. Now, you're the minister in charge of the scaffolding. I said, the press, as usual, are attacking the unions. Now, if you're fair income, you'll come out there with me and I'll show you why the unions are causing, they're making sure that no one's going to get killed. To his credit, he agreed. So we set off in the morning. Which, which particular minister was that? That was Ramsey, right? Jim Ramsey. And we off we travelled out to this job. Now, I said, have a look at this. We, who, who's checking this? Is the department checking scaffolds to see that they've been built properly? They do whatever they like on these sorts of jobs. So he, he listened. And I, I appreciated that because a lot of them, they don't want to talk to you at all. Uh, on the way back into town, there was a bloke with the longest ladder I have ever seen. And he was leaning against a wall, a painter, and the ladder was like that. It had a, an arc. And I said, look at that fellow. I said, if he sees the day out, he'll be lucky. Right? You've got to do something to stop this. People taking their risking their lives for a quid. And why? Because they're not, not paying the proper rate or anything. They're just having to go. Anyway, to his credit, he put on three new inspectors mm. about a month later. But it was still ad hocery. What you had then was the Act, and that changed things. Well, Ramsey was a Liberal minister. Yeah. And then the Kane government got in in 82. In 86, or was it 85? I'm not 100%. was the final, the introduction of the occupational health and safety legislation and all the regulations and all the things that followed from that. Now, there was a lot of hope in uh, the building unions about what the Occupational Health and Safety Act would do for them in terms of safety and just dealing with a whole lot of issues that had just been local disputes. But over the journey, WorkSafe and all the rest of it, I wouldn't say there's a consideration that it was an overwhelming success. It's better than what had preceded, but... You can always do better. And how much better do you reckon could have been done? Uh, I, I I do believe that a lot could a lot more could have been done, uh, especially in terms of getting the message through. You can have all the rules in the world, but if the blokes on the job don't know what they are and they don't know that they've got. Uh, legal backing, uh, a lot of them, I said to a man once on a job, a grollo job, there was no handrail. He was four floors off the ground, but there was a, I can't think of the word, concrete that came up above the slab, mm. and he was standing next to it, and I said, come here, please. I was frightened that if I said anything loud... He came over. I said, what are you doing? One strong breeze and you've gone down four floors. 
oh, I'd be right. He said, yeah, you know, a lot of logic. Anyway, well, I said, you'll come here and no one goes out there to put the handrail up. I met him later and he came to me and he said, I'd learn a lot, Dick. He said, I went to the CFMEU to a training course and he said, I have learned a lot. I was silly. You know, I've got a family. What mm. am I going to do? So that's what we... I think that we fell down there. They used to have a day on the job to go through the act with people. Now, let me say that I've got the highest regard for Italians. I love Italy like you wouldn't believe. But you go in and people are telling you all about this and they give you a, then a quiz. Most of them couldn't write English, mm. Right. A lot of them didn't understand the word that was being said. That isn't how you educate people, really. That's I, I, used, I think I thought it was a lot of old rubbish. Quite frankly, should have been done in Italian and Greek or whatever, so they knew what was going on. That Ralph is that side of it. Would it help perhaps if there had been a few more prosecutions? I again, I, I'm not saying that there shouldn't have been more prosecutions because I've seen some blatant disregard from project managers and builders. That one bloke, his roofing worker, was working on the roof and he was cutting the mesh and he threw the offcut over the side and the electric cables act while he still had it in his hand and he slumped onto the roof. They called cowboy in and they said what the cowboy said what's he doing lying on the roof slacking on the job the bloke's dead those sorts of people shouldn't be allowed in any industry but there was another case where a, a bloke that I knew very well and he he, he he treat everybody with the highest regard there was a bloke died on the job over a silly incident uh, and he was a project manager and he was two streets away I'm not saying that this, because what we're talking about here is for this person to do his job to make sure everybody else is doing theirs, right? Mm. He's not going to be standing next to you if you're doing something to tell you to stop. But it just seemed a bit unfair. He was a decent, top-notch bloke. And I might say he was quite sympathetic uh, to the efforts being made by the unions to do the job. I won't say it here, but I'll tell you later. That wouldn't have been justice. But but I tell you that there are people like that roofing contractor that don't give a shit. Right? You're just a number, and if you're not there, someone else will be there. You know that. Now, let's just think back now to your time on the Snowy Mountain Scheme. That would have been pretty rough and ready. Extremely rough and ready. And how do you reckon the period we're talking about now in the 80s, how do you reckon that compares? How much have we improved from the 50s and 60s up there? And how much do you think we still have to go? You're talking about Snowy 2. No, Snowy 1. Just let's talk about Snowy 1. Snowy 1. Rough and ready that was. Well, there, there were 121 people died on the Snowy uh, scheme complete. I was in 
I was a passenger in the ambulance one day with the driver and he said that the Snowy Mountains held the world record for the least number of deaths per mile in the world. And he thought that somehow that that was a badge of honour. <laughs> and, and 121 still died. Yeah. yeah. On other jobs it had been 150 or 170. Now, those jobs on the Snowy, that 121 may have included some road accidents and that too. So I, I will say put it down to all activities in tunnels and dams. But the Snowy, it was a, it is a great scheme. There's no question about the engineering. It was something that would never, nowhere else it was the leading engineering project in the world. But it was, there were people there who had come from Europe no, they didn't fight each other here. They came here to start a new life. They were interested in mostly in making a quid and getting a new and getting heading back to the cities and and buying houses and doing things. But the people running the systems conspired to make sure there was going to be no activity of a, a, a union nature. I think Oliver was the chap in Sydney. He did a deal. Charlie Oliver. Charlie Oliver. Just in case someone thought it might be Billy Oliver. No, Charlie Oliver from the AWU. (laughs) And, you know, they cut back on everything. And if you raise your voice, I watched the show on SBS last week about Snowy. There was a man there, Kerrigan. He's still alive with a big white beard and white hair. And... He was talking, he gave him a bit of a serve about the safety and, but he had put, raised his voice on behalf of some of the workers over an issue of lunch sandwiches or something. Hmm. He found himself on the way, on the road. He was declared a communist, right? And that was it. The union didn't step in and say, oh, hang on a minute, there's no law against that even in this country. But that was it. He was gone. He went down on the way. He stopped at Adam Inneby at the start of the old goose and he had a pot, a pot of beer. And the bloke said, why don't you stay here and build a house for me? This was new Adam Inneby. So he stayed. He's still there. He built a couple more houses. He bought the Snow Goose Hotel. He bought the rights to all the boats on Lake Eugenbein. And but that a very, was a, a very successful uh, communist then. Well, <laughs> Made a lot of money. Well, but, <laughs> but Paddy was the sort of bloke that would give half of it away. Yeah. It, it, he wasn't driven by all that power. And, uh, so there was, uh, it was well known, the Ustashi were active in the Snowy Mountains to make sure that none, none of their people raised their voices. It was all controlled from the top down that nothing was going to stop, nothing was going to be heard on behalf of work. I was there and I said, member of the union, BWIU. I said, there's no union on the job. And this bloke sitting opposite me said, yes, there is. And I said, no, I'm sure. And he said, yeah, it is. He said, I am. I said, well, you kept that very quiet. <laughs> and the, the organiser came down from Sydney, used to stay in the guest house. 
where Her Majesty stayed when they visited the Snowy years ago. So you work it out for yourself. It was a shame. I mean, on the one hand, it was uh, it was great. I think we'd all share in in, in admiring the uh, the end result. But gee, there were a lot of things there that you know people died and necessarily. So let's just put that in this context of where we are in the in the 1980s. The jump, I would suggest, <coughs> is considerable between Snowy's type uh, standards and where we were in the building construction industry in Victoria in the 1980s. So we've gone a massive improvement. We've still got a long way to go. Where do you reckon we were heading in the, in the, in the 80s in terms of Union organisation, occupational health and safety, all those things, they all mix together, they all mesh into one thing. Where do you reckon we were? Where do you reckon we were going then? The way you saw it. Well, we were in no man's land in a lot of ways. Uh, That's an interesting response. Please continue. No, but I mean, if you're talking about degree... Mm -hmm. it was a battle, it was a struggle wherever you went to get people to comply with even the mildest. You know, there were some things you, know, you knew you'd never achieve, but that didn't stop you trying. But the idea that you could go onto a job and say, well, there are things here that need to be fixed now and there are things that need to be fixed tomorrow. Well, if you stayed on for a little while, you'd see some action on the things that you said were urgent. Uh, but if you left, then when you left, the others, that's, the list was torn up. So I had a plan. I, where I had to do that, I had made sure that before I left, I had someone was going to anonymously let me know whether all that list was achieved or not. If it was, that's well and good. I'm educating someone. If it wasn't, I'm back. And that ends part one of today's Creature of the Industry, Nick Moore, and part two will be in a fortnight's time. Thank you. And in the winter cold. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. United we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers Have been driven from our land We faced deregistration It backfired in the face We're not fooled by arbitration We won't stay in our place We hit the bosses hard and fast To win and keep our gains and break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got
start a fighting history and we never will be caught. Not those laborers and ain't 